0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Kevin McElvoy, author of One Kind Favor.
1: I have tried to be in readiness for something to find me um, that is some um, going to be more than I am ready for. I never have tried to place myself uh, in readiness for what I'm ready for that seems simply a less exciting life as an artist than uh, to be in over my head.
0: We'll be back with Kevin McElvoy after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free. But it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today right now in this moment and on to the show. My guest today is Kevin McElvoy, poet and fiction writer. He is the author of six novels and a short story collection, and a collection that is a mixture of prose poems and short stories. Some of his titles include Little Peg, At the Gate of All Wonder, and 57 Octaves Below Middle Sea. He served as the fiction editor and editor in chief of the literary magazine Puerto del Sol and taught fiction at the Warren Wilson College MFA program for more than 30 years. His fiction has appeared in The Scoundrel, Kenyon Review Online, The Cortland Review, and Prime Number, among others. His new novel, One Kind Favor, is loosely based on a tragic real-life lynching of a young black man in 2014 in a North Carolina rural town. In the novel, young Lincoln Lennox is lynched, and his murder is covered up in the fictional community of Cord, North Carolina. The cover-up is revealed by characters who were once inhabitants of the town, but are now ghosts who take responsibility for telling the truth and acting as the collective memory and consciousness for a town that is mired in hate. One Kind Favor is satirical and poignant, and in its lyrical telling exposes what lies underneath a place that is capable of such brutality and racism. We began the discussion with Kevin McElvoy, sharing the impetus for his novel, "One Kind Favor.
1: Well, it is very similar to the way I've always um, written everything, my uh, my short, short pieces, my short fictions, my long fictions, my novels. Um, I have tried to be in readiness for something to find me um, that is some going to be more than I am ready for. Um, I never have tried to place myself uh, in readiness for what I'm ready for. That seems simply a less exciting life as an artist than uh, to be in over my head. Uh, and, um, And various projects then present themselves. And sometimes it does have to do with timing in this instance, Definitely, because um, I had I had um, seen through at the Gate of All Wonder um, uh, and uh, had um, finished the last of the editing on it, um, and before its publication was already underway with the short short fiction, but was wanting to be uh, started on. Uh, a a long project, which I've always liked the anchor of both, of working um, on the long project, giving that my first energies each writing session, and then the shorter projects uh, um, at any stopping point in the um, writing session. And and I did read uh, this article, that uh, was published in the Guardian by um, a reporter whose beat is the South. His name is Ed Pilkington. And he wrote about um, a uh, lynching that occurred in the Piedmont of North Carolina that was covered up uh, and was uh, very swiftly covered up uh, in a way that he wrote quite directly about. Um, and, And this uh, seemed to me of the moment, uh, in which, uh, we, uh, uh where we were as a country with, the uh, um, uh, the intensifying hate impulse already powerfully emerging, um, only a short while into the Obama administration, uh, and, um, uh, and because I live in North Carolina, um, which is this um, bellwether state. Uh, it's a bellwether uh, now as the state that is uh, the model of regressiveness and, um, uh, and prejudice and uh, racism. Uh, its Republican legislature leads the way in the country in terms of uh, pushing at everything from suppression to of uh, votes uh, to um, uh, actual illegally uh, uh, governing. And, um, and then others in the United States watch that model, and uh, they, um, they move from it. Uh, and um, I've watched that happen, and as a storyteller, the intersection of me watching the larger picture of that in the nation and encountering this tragedy in this small town in the Piedmont of North Carolina um, made me say, uh, this is, this is the project that um, I want to give myself utterly to. And this is the project that um, I am unequal to in the ways that sentence by sentence, I will have to earn writing about. Uh, And that to me always is so important.
0: I can imagine like writing about a real lynching and getting into race relations and history would be kind of terrifying. And you mentioned that you were trying to sort of write above, you know, your weight class. Um, Mm. So how did you approach it? Like, what did you do to get ready?
1: Well, um, this is definitely uh, the kind of work in which you uh, you have a stage of research that um, is a very important first stage. Uh, and, um, and for me, that meant um, uh, um, actually going to visit physically this place. Uh, and it also meant um, uh, extensive research into, for instance, um, the history of uh, lynchings in that particular part of the South, which is the Piedmont of North Carolina. And, um, and feeling that I had a sense of um, that from the inside. And the only way that I know ever to um, not do research from the outside, um, but from the inside, is to have a sense of what perspective I'm in. Uh, what will be the perspective of the storytelling? Uh, in this instance, it seemed very natural for it to be um, the storytelling that is in that form of omniscience that people call tribal omniscience, uh, the kind of omniscience that a community has that feels like it knows everything about everyone um, and always has and always will. Um, Once I could um, sentence by sentence start to have a sense of that then in um, research, I could uh, start to, with everything I read, with everything that I accumulated in my visits to this place, be thinking from inside that we perspective, the community itself. And that seems important since uh, one of the characteristics of tribal omniscience is that um, a community can be very intensely loving and very intensely judgmental of its own in the very same moment uh, and um, can be very compassionate and very cruel uh, in the same moment. And the paradox of that in the United States overall um, is uh, something that is a powerful story. Uh, How is it that uh, people Who are genuinely um, loving people um, can um, commit the kinds of uh, heinous crimes that they commit? Um, How can people who call themselves Christian commit such crimes um, and defend it as part of their Christian belief? Um, But those contradictions and those paradoxes are eternal in um, communities and um, and in um, very small communities like this, are um, their own picture of um, of the of the American culture in the twenty first century. Uh, and um, and so as ever, I, I try to uh, sentence by sentence find my way into the work, and um, uh, and then discover where the sentences are leading me. Uh, while I'm also doing research and while I'm asking myself um, those kinds of just uh, uh, general questions. What is the foreground of this? Is the foreground of this story, that spectacular event, the lynching, or is that the background story? And if it is the background story that um, that constantly pulses throughout, um, what are the foreground stories? Um, and um, and it seemed pretty, uh, 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 pretty wonderful to discover that the overall sense of this is the sense of a ghost story. So then, of course, one of the things you do in research is you start reading ghost stories, especially ghost stories in the tradition of the South, uh, which I did as exhaustively as I possibly could.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the collective. So it's told... From this we perspective, and there are many, many, many characters in here, which Ooh. as an aside, kind of reminds me of The Wide Net by Eudora mm-hmm. Welty, which mm-hmm. all these people are are dredging a river, and there's some people that are really important, and some people that are less important, but are still important to the story. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about like the craft of that if you thought about stories like this at all when you started writing?
1: I definitely think about it, especially in regards to uh, the novel and or the novelistic short story. Um, The novel has a lot of uh, room in it for there to be this dynamic crowding um, that is... um, the the crowding of uh, primary, secondary, tertiary, supernumerary dramas, uh, the crowding of uh, individual characters uh, on colliding paths, the crowding of relationships between characters, the crowding of uh, the relationship between individual characters and individual settings. Uh, And one of the great pleasures about writing the novel is that um, you have so much opportunity there to crowd the stage and um and and in drama for instance in shakespeare's uh, dramas um, you notice that one of the ways that the um the drama breathes is that the stage one moment has a singular single character on it uh hamlet let's say uh and in the next moment um it seems to have uh Hamlet uh, and um, uh, and a ghost on stage. And in the next moment, it's Hamlet and uh, the entire familial group um, that is all on the stage. And then in the next moment, um, an individual character or characters like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Uh, and, um, and that is one of the ways that a drama breathes and it breathes that way in fiction, in storytelling too when the writer takes the opportunity to say, well, there's a there's a crowded stage here. uh, And um, and so much can happen on a crowded stage uh, that the reader is taking in overtly and covertly.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about the specifics of this story. It takes place in a a town called Cord, which has had a few different spellings of that name um and you call it the dark house of the wounded and the returning wounded in the beginning of the book and place is very important even though this is um so much about the people there the place is also important so i'm wondering if you can talk about crafting what you wanted cord to be on the page
1: it's very interesting um, to uh, to have sometimes the tuning fork of a single sentence, and um, the book opens with the single sentence naming matters here in chord, uh, and um, and it is true that um, you uh, only have this little bit of uh, cloth in your hands when you begin begin uh, as a uh, unfolding a story or gathering the rest of a story into your hands. Uh, and, um, and that first little bit of cloth that you have matters, naming matters here in court. Uh, and, um, and that carries in it uh, the uh, echoes of what else will be examined. Um, how is it that we name one race as uh, a um, an evil and another race as good, um, how is it that uh, we um, uh, move from thinking of uh, the word "cord" as derived from "accord," uh, and we have the same terrible association of cord with lynching rope, uh, and um, and this has a lot to do with trusting individual words, the individual word naming, the individual word chord. Uh, and um, and in this story in which uh, that matter of naming will resound in almost every uh, chapter, almost every element of the work. Uh, it, uh, is, um, it is something that I hope resonates with the larger, national tragedy that the book is uh, acknowledging, um, which is uh, where has naming brought us? Uh, what what has it done to us? Uh, and, um, and how will we know where to uh, go next? Well, we live in a time in which um, we see the worst possibilities of naming And we also um, live in this extraordinary moment in which um, this movement of Black Lives Matters um, has uh, made as its mantra, uh, um, say my name. Say my name. Uh, name the people who have been killed. Name the people who have been lynched. Name the people who um, have been murdered by um, uh, um, some force uh, that is like a police force or is uh, like a um, uh, a mob. Uh, and um, and we do. We we really live in this extraordinarily interesting time. The novelist writing in that time. Um, has heart and soul inside the book, and hopes that moment by moment, um, being inside the book is being inside the bell of the culture, um, the bell of the milieu, the bell of the moment um, in that you are writing about. Uh, And, um, uh, and so this was, this was important to me, not just through all processes of composing, but all the processes of revising this book. Five years it took me to write this book. Uh, And um, so uh, a long process.
0: I can imagine why it took you five years, because it's very intricate. Like for the listener, this is not a straightforward narrative. It's it's almost like multiple worlds are happening at once. You have, you know, the the main incident is that this young boy, teenager named Lincoln, was lynched at a playground. And he had two friends that he hung out with a lot. And his mother is, you know, in deep sorrow about it. And there's, um, there's investigators who come to try to investigate Um, at least it looks like that's what they're there for. There's, you know, commentary on, on presidents and politics and, and we can talk about that, but it's also that you have like living people, um, interacting with ghosts and people who are once there are haunting there. So how did you, can you tell me a little bit about the sensibility of the book? If someone's going to go into reading it?
1: I, I think, um, this is, this is important when, um, When a reader uh, enters an experience that uh, is not instantly familiar as a reading experience, it's really important that the opening pages, the opening sections of the work, um, uh, both play fair with the reader and not insult the reader's intelligence. Uh, That um, in an instance like this, in which there will be a crowded stage, the reader will have to sort and say, well, I'm being asked to um, uh, come to know not just a single character or two characters, but a whole set of characters. Uh, in an instance in which part of that set of characters is ghosts, um, the, um, the reader is challenged doubly uh, in the instance in which the very opening is not um, the reader. Uh, grabbing hold of one uh, primary strand of plot, but um, of a set of elusive plots. Um, Is this going where I think it's going? Um, Is this a dead end? Um, Is this um, uh, compounding itself as a plot? The work has to play really fair with the reader and at the same time has to say, um, uh, to the reader implicitly, here, the sentences will give you what you need. Um, you uh, you cannot, with a book like this, push and glide through the book, as you may with other uh, reading experiences that are, in fact, quite wonderful reading experiences. H- here's a book that you um, are, are asked and I think fairly uh, in this instance, um, to live inside each sentence and to go where it goes, which is to say, um, to feel that this is a moment by moment experience. Um, This is true, I believe when people uh, read Virginia Woolf. I I believe this is true when people read the work of Angela Carter, um, uh, Clarice Lispector, uh, that um, you are asked by the work itself, uh, and implicitly by uh, the narrative viewpoint, um, and then uh, uh, behind that, uh, the uh, author, um, to stay in the sentences. That means the sentences have to have a lot of energy and electricity that um, earns that full attentiveness. Uh, And um, this is one of the great challenges of writing a book like this is that um, the um, the importance of the sentences is the utmost uh, challenge.
0: And why do you think it was important, or why was it important to write it this way between these worlds of ghosts and non-ghosts with all these kind of sub-stories?
1: You know, that's, uh, that, that's a... Uh, A question that um, I I wish I could uh, answer better. Because for me, since uh, writing is a process of discovery, since all the processes of composing are processes of discovery, um, I really don't know where I'm going until I have the critical mass. Let's say the first 150 pages of the book, in which in my dialogue with the book itself, I can start to uh, say, um, I think I I know why we're here. I think I know why the structure is this. I think I'm beginning to understand that this aspect of the work is organic uh, in a way that I did not consciously understand. I'm not a writer who um, has a project, uh, maps it out uh, and um, outlines it and um, then moves through that outline. Um, that is a good creative process, too, as long, in my opinion, as long as the writer um, is always open to discovery. But my process really is a process of uh, learning from the work uh, what the work wishes to be. This is usually thought of as the way poets make their work. Uh, In fact, the word autopoesis is a way of talking about how a poem makes itself. Um, It it has a certain set of tonal qualities and tonal shifts, etc., that uh, that decide what the poem will be. And one of the reasons that um, we go to poetry um, is for the wonder of that sense of how it made itself. Um, And... uh, Um, And we don't often think of novels as being made that way, though many novelists certainly do make their novels that way. Uh, The ones I've mentioned, writers like uh, uh, Julio Cortazar, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, um, I don't know, Jim Crace, I would say, uh, um, and, um, and so for me, I can't actually uh, proudly say, "Oh, oh, I had I had the whole schema in my head, uh, and um, and then somehow fully realized it." Uh, I um, arrived at a draft that began to um, identify what the book wished to be, and then very patiently revised um, from within the book, and that's that's my method. It turns out it's the method of of many writers.
0: When Lincoln is lynched, these investigators come, but they don't do much, and mm-hmm. you do have this collective sense of the community of some people care and some people don't, and the people around him um, do are there Are there any characters in that community that you want to talk about or situations? I have a few, but i i'm just wondering what you want to if there's anything you want to talk about first
1: well, it is. It is an interesting thing um, to me, uh, and it was always an exciting part of my own dialogue with the work um, to, um, to, to wonder about the presence of uh, Jacob, Woman's father, um, who, has, who was once upon a time a member of the community, left it and has returned to it, um, and so is both insider and outsider. Uh, and um, Acker, who is a true outsider, who has become an insider. Uh, and um, uh, and those two characters, uh, and Mr. Panther, who is the outsider who can never actually be an insider. Uh, um, those three characters arriving in the work was, for me, uh, very important, very uh, generative for the work itself. And um, and in my own conversation with those characters, which is always characteristic of spending five years of your life, you uh, are in this very active dialogue with the characters uh, that are um, even of least importance in the work and that dialogue doesn't end when you stop your writing session it's with you all day long all evening in my case often in my dreams Um, and um, those three characters really are uh, characters that uh, now that the book is done and it's it's out i'm sure not done in my conversation with them uh, and i'm trying to learn from them what you can as a storyteller learn from a character like Mr. Panther, um, like, uh, Acker, um, and like Jacob.
0: So Acker was an older woman who was really good friends with Lincoln and this other young man, woman you mentioned there, they were sort of a, a threesome that hung out and they, they stayed at this place called the Helltel. Um, uh-huh. and, One of the main um, hangouts in this town is this, it's a mixture of like a a consignment store and a bar. Yes. And it, it was called Stanley Acker Stanleys and Acker's name is crossed out because for a brief while she owned it. And she's Mm -hmm. one of the more mysterious characters in this town. There's people don't know where she came from. They don't know how old she is. She's hanging out with these two young men. Maybe she isn't really alive. Um,
1: Exactly.
0: Tell me more about her and why for her, like why for you, you're still talking to her.
1: For one thing, she she is directly based on one of my true literary heroes, kathy Acker, um, uh, the famous punk writer and novelist uh, who um, wrote uh, um, so much uh, extraordinarily wild, uh strange, weird uh, um work and um and died young uh, and um, was truly, of a kind of punk sensibility. And, um, but of the extremes of that, that um, people really didn't know what to make of her. Um, I'm glad that her work endures uh, and uh, particularly some of her uh, greatest work like Blood and Guts in high school um, uh, and Tarantula. Um, But um, she is one of those writers who um, was so important uh, to um, essentially saying to the literary establishment um, is there anything other than the usual thing you can do? Uh, um, here, let me let me show you what I have in mind. <laughs> and um, she was an agitator. Uh, and um, she was the kind of person that uh, you can only have mixed feelings towards. Uh, and that kind of person in a community um, always tends to... Uh, be a, a figure that uh, uh, even the people drawn to are uh, doubtful about. Uh, and, um, and so she, she is important to me also uh, because she is this echo of a real person. I never met Kathy Acker, I, um, I only knew her uh, through her work. She figures also for the writer as kind of the conscience of the work. If this work is strange, um, I would ask myself, um, and I'm thinking like Kathy Acker, is it strange enough? If this book has ghosts, um, are those ghosts um, uh, uh, forces to be reckoned with, or are they merely um, aspects of amusement? Um, And... um, and so it, it, it's really great to have a character like that who is your conscience and to have a character like Mr. Panther who um, has experienced great horror in his life that is uh, directly related to the racial horrors of our nation. Um, there is a way in which a character like that can be part of the conscience of the work, and, um, and this aspect of examination of conscience, a very Catholic idea from a writer who um, is uh, in his origins, a Catholic, uh, that idea is something that is part of my daily life as a writer. I want to write with my full consciousness and I want to bring to bear my full conscience. Uh, and, um, and so those kinds of characters have, uh, a, a power for me, uh, even as I write the next thing that they're not in.
0: Do you want to share briefly about Jacob and Mr. Panther?
1: Well, um, it is, this is, this is important, I think, uh, to the work that, um, uh, uh Jacob is, uh, a, a kind of, um, He is a a figure, very like ghosts. Ghosts are often in any tradition, but particularly in the tradition of the South and to some degree, uh, the Appalachian uh, South. uh, They are revenants. They are uh, people who uh, left, but there's a sense they never left. They returned and there's a sense that um, not all of them, has returned. Uh, and um, those kinds of figures in um, American literature go back even to Twain and to uh, Washington Irving and to Melville and Hawthorne. Uh, and um, uh, because we do, we have a sense in this culture that is always trying to move forward, that we are leaving something behind, we are leaving others behind uh, in order to progress, and um, and Jacob is one of those people who um, has returned, and it is, it is, he has returned, um, uh, and people can't be sure, is that the ghost of Jacob, or is that Jacob uh, that we knew when he left 15 years ago? Uh, and um, and we all have experienced that, all of us in our communities who have actually paid a lot of attention to our communities have this sense of um, the people around us who are revenants. So, for instance, if you live in a, a neighborhood where there is a walker, where there is somebody who is constantly walking through the neighborhood that... Um, uh, that actually causes people to be a little uncomfortable. They're uh, they're not quite sure the person is of their neighborhood, though they think maybe she or he is. They're not quite sure that person is normal because the person doesn't interact with them quite, quote, unquote, normally. Uh, and um, yet that person seems always to be walking day and night in their neighborhood. Uh, and... Um, and that is the kind of figure that is a ghost figure, a revenant figure, uh, and, um, uh, and one that uh, very naturally arrived in this work. As for Mr. Panther, he is a danger, he is a threat. Uh, he has these machetes that he carries with him, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, a character like that who will not put aside these uh, weapons uh, uh, is uh, a, a kind of potent figure that he is a black man with these machetes matters in this work uh, in which um, uh, things are charged racially uh, and um, and he is he is a, a figure of uh, of great uh, force, and fearsomeness, and he is also injured very deeply and irreparably uh, by um, the um, the deaths that he has experienced, and that he is there to investigate.
0: Yeah, there is so much pain in this community with sort of the half that <laughs> sees beauty and and shows love, and you know, the deepest pain is is with um, Lincoln's mother. So she, she goes to basically a swamp, um, that's inhabited by people, um, people who have been lynched, people who have been killed in violence, dead people, and she just can't sort of leave. Can you talk a little bit about her journey?
1: I think of Jediah as uh, someone who, um, uh, cannot cope with the death of her uh, son um, and cannot find in her community um, what would begin any process of healing or reconciliation within her or without her, um, though she does have people who care about her and love her. Uh, um, In her own uh, uh, reaction to her son's violent death, she uh, feels she has to leave uh, and and wonder. And um, she does, she wanders into this swamp which is just at the edge of uh, the community, uh, um, surely thinking that she would return. Um, But but from the moment that she enters there, she is entering um, the underworld um, that um, she uh, had not anticipated could claim her in such a way that she would not be able to then leave. Um, to me, she has she has entered the kind of darkness that um, one uh, uh, cannot leave. It, it has wonder wonder inside of it. Um, but it is uh, a dark, dark realm. And she seems to me representative of um, people who are, um, uh, who their life is devastated by racial violence um, that they have experienced as close as a family member um, and um, enter a dark realm of uh, of sadness uh, and terror that um, they think and we think they will pass through um, and be okay. Uh, And she is to me a powerful reminder that, um, no, no, there are many, many, many people. We can count them by the tens of thousands in our uh, 21st century American culture um, who will enter that dark realm and will never leave it. Uh, And and, um, they will, they will find Um, wonder there, they will find uh, uh, a a completely different way of of being, and perhaps even regain a kind of innocence as she does, where after a period of time there, uh, she begins to engage in doll play, the kind of doll play that she might have as a younger person. Uh, And, um, but she is, she's she's a, a tragic figure in my mind.
0: You have references to lots of cultural things, um, certainly, certainly Trump and that whole administration, um, the Ku Klux Klan, just the pol- politics of the day. And um, another thing you have in there that the young boys, Lincoln and woman, were really loved. What was the mission at Mars? Opportunity. And they call mm-hmm. it Opie. Um, <laughs> tell me about that.
1: You know, it's been fascinating. Uh, it's because um, people who have now read the book um, have said to me, "Was there such a thing as Opie?" <laughs> and um, and actually, of course, there was. Uh, you know, um, so much goes on in our lives uh, that uh, something like the the Mars Opportunity rover is somewhere in your consciousness, but you're not necessarily really paying as close attention to it as um, some nerdy young person might. Um, and um, and it, it does seem unreal that uh, NASA would have actually assigned a voice to API, um, would have made it possible for um, uh, people who wish to, um, to actually track with great particularity what was going on with A as Api encountered uh, Martian storms, et cetera. But in fact, that's true. And um, it is always a, a wonderful thing um, for me as a writer. It has always been for me as a reader, wonderful to encounter the irreal. That is, um, something that actually is real, but seems like it can't be. <laughs> real uh, and um, and to encounter that in a work uh that is um, uh, is a work that it's in the larger sense is irreal um, is carnivalesque uh, is um, uh, a uh, a picture that um, is not the normal picture um, that is, that distorts time and distorts space uh, Um, It seems to me like uh, an irreal thing like Oppie can actually be um, there and be there organically without feeling like the author has wedged it or forced it into the work. Um, It seemed to me right for Lincoln and Woolman um, in that uh, they were two young high school age men who actually had intact some of their innocence and paradoxically um, had moved um, significantly far from being sexually innocent in their relationship with Acker.
0: When you're writing about something as painful as racism and some of the politics going on in our country now and and with the Ku Klux Klan in, in the South for years, and you're writing about it in kind of a a warped way. And what I mean by that is, you know, bringing in these ghosts and kind of a poetic, um, a lot of symbolism for things going on. Like the Black Beast and the festival and things like that. Does it make you, as you're writing or now that you're done, look at the real events in any different light? Like, did it expand your imagination or understanding of it in any way?
1: I do believe that um, the life of all artists, all artists of all kinds um, is, is a life of training yourself to be present, to be fully present to what is before you. Um, the um, the tenderness that is always before you that um, people are evidencing directly or indirectly. Um, the... Um, failure of um, of compassion that you are um, trying to be present to, but fully present to, not present to and uh, only long enough to generalize, but present to long enough to enter it and from inside it to look out um, and from inside it to um, uh, begin to uh, understand its paradoxes. That habit, of uh, presence um, is um, it is all I can say is um, is something that adds up to an extraordinarily rich life. I, I feel as I see seventy in the headlights, Mitzi, that um, I have um, lived a very, very, very rich life because of the habits of presence that my art has demanded of me. And um, so I hope that it is true that from inside anything that I write, looking out, I see the world more compassionately. Um, And I hope that um, as that applies to my own life and the hours of my own life that are not um, inside, the, the newest thing that I'm writing, that I am also um, able to apply a kind of compassion that has to do with being fully present, um, and that tests one's conscience, too. Um, if um, uh, if one, uh, as a white male, presumes to write about any aspect of Black experience, um, um One has to have the habits of presence that are the habits of conscience that will not permit you to generalize about black experience and to say, oh, a black young man of high school age would be thinking or feeling this. That is a terrible mistake um, and exactly the kind of uh, thing that when people respond to it negatively, they should um the um, the requirement of uh, conscience for an artist um, is to live inside the moments of a particular experience, um, and um, not to generalize uh, and um, the the five years of living inside uh, woman's experience and Lincoln's experience and Jediah's experience and Mr Panther's, experience um, is uh, instructive to me about um, not generalizing um, and um, uh, assuming that an individual is an individual and um, should be honored uh, for all of um, the complex mysteries that that person is. and, uh, it is, it's, it's a, um, it's a, it's a rigorous, challenging, lucky life, the life of an artist.
0: And tell me about the title.
1: Uh, well, One Kind Favor is, uh, based, uh, on a blues song, uh, by Blaine Lemon Jefferson. Uh, and, um, it, uh, um, the, the particular, verse that the title is taken from is, there's one kind favor I'll ask of you, please see that my grave is kept clean. This is, this was very resonant for me as somebody who has a great love of of blues music uh, um, for this story, Um, because um, it, uh, it carries in it um, this odd word kind and this other kind word favor uh, and um, it is um, paradoxical to uh, the unkindness and um, the terror that is part of that uh, community that I'm writing about um, but the song itself um, is a song about um, our um, our strange weird and horrific, history, as a nation, uh, in which, um, as if it weren't enough for people to um, lynch another human being, um, one thing that was often hidden from view, unless you were in the community itself, was um, the habit of then desecrating the grave of that person, um, and doing it forever generations upon generations after the lynching uh, desecrating the grave uh and um, this is this is a a, a great uh, a songwriter a great artist blind lemon jefferson saying uh basically crying out um please if you uh uh if you will uh don't don't go uh beyond Uh, the obscenity of the lynching to the obscenity of uh, desecrating the grave. And that is, we we are desecrating the graves uh, um, of um, the people we have lost in our um, uh, racial violence in this nation every time that uh, we uh, re-engage this hate impulse uh, in our uh, history. And we sure as heck re-engaged it during the Trump Reich.
0: You said in some of the materials about this book that it's the most important book you ever wrote. And I think this whole conversation points out why, but I'm wondering if you want to share why. And then having that be sort of your paradigm, not how do you keep writing, but kind of how do you keep writing? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well um yeah it is it's i i have no question in my mind it is the most important thing um, i've uh, written uh and um i i i feel that that's true because i can see everything i've ever written in it i can see um the music of uh every book i've written so far in my life uh, brought to bear in terms of What my ear has learned about uh, shifting modulating tonalities uh, and this singing saying that is important to my work. Um, The, um, the sense of a novel as a wilderness that um, the writer enters has always been there in my work always uh, and um, is more fully realized in this uh, book uh and by that i mean um, i could not have written this book without having written uh, 12 other books i, I could not uh, and um, i've had the luck of eight of those being published uh including this book but i know that i uh, earned the writing of this book through this 50 years of uh, writing.'m i'm, I'm uh, uh i'm 68 i've been, giving writing my all since I was 17 Uh, and um, on every page of this I see uh, the realization of what I was after uh, always as a writer and what was always coming after me and finding me in everything I wrote. Now having said that um, the um, the this essence of of what I wish to be as an artist uh, which is uh, someone who continues to learn uh, how to be the singing saying writer um, is uh, something that I'll never be done learning with uh, learning from uh, um, being better at uh, and um, and so I, I do, I feel confident that with the poetry that I'm writing and the new prose that I'm writing, um, that um, there is a whole world of things at this sentence level that um, I am going to understand uh, in a different way. Um, but I, I feel that no matter what I write next, uh, I'll be looking at this book, One Kind Favor, as um, not just one of the several turning points in my life, um, but the turning point that the whole journey was uh, moving towards, uh, and I am—I'm remade by it. I'm luckily re-energized by it, uh, and uh, and am excited about what is underway.
0: Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes, I can. And thanks for asking me, because this is a writer I wish everyone would read. Um, It is uh, the writer Gail Jones. Uh, She um, was uh, most prominent um, in uh, the 70s. Um, Her um, she has a big following. Um, in fact, as recently as a year ago, there was a sustained article about her body of work in the Atlantic. Um, all of her work is in print, uh, and uh, and some of it newly in print because of uh, people rediscovering how wonderful she is. Gail G A Y L Jones. Um, her two most famous books are *Eva's Man* and *Corregidora*. Um, and I wish. Everyone, everyone would read her because um, she is a daring, daring writer who um, who wrote these books very much in an associative mode uh, that um, that was similar to Toni Morrison's use of the associative mode in her great works, um, but that pushes farther at that. Um, than even Toni Morrison has. Uh, and so uh, Gail Jones's work is, is wilder uh, and um, I admire it very much. And this is a passage I'll read uh, from it. Uh, even now people come in here and ask me how it happened. They want me to tell it over and over again. And I don't mean just the psychiatrist, but people from newspapers and things. They read about it or hear about it someplace and just wanna keep it living. At first, I wouldn't talk to anybody. All during the trial, I wouldn't talk to anybody. But then after I came in here, I started talking. I tell them so much, I don't even get it straight anymore. I tell them things that don't even have to do with what I did, but they say they wanna hear that too. They wanna hear about what happened between my mother and father, as well as what happened between me and that man. One of them came in here and even wanted to know about my grandmother and grandfather. I know when I'm not getting things straight and I tell them I'm not getting this straight, but they say that's all right to go ahead talking. Sometimes they think I'm lying to them though. I tell them it ain't me lying, it's memory lying. I don't believe that because the past is still as hard on me as the present, but I tell them that anyway. They say they're helping me. I'm 43 years old. I ain't seen none of their help yet. So this is this is work I admire very much. It uh, this is a mind that um, knows that it can't get the story straight that it wants to tell, uh, and so every page will be um, this effort to uh, get it straight that fails, uh, and um, uh, and yet. Uh, Um, the pressure of memory will cause uh, the storyteller to keep trying very powerful work. Uh, And um, I um, wish I could put the work of Gil Jones in every, every person's hands.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to read uh, uh, just a bit of um, a moment in one kind favor that um, was uh, rewritten and rewritten and rewritten um, many 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 times Uh, and I think that's because it is that kind of moment in which there is terror at play and there's comedy inside that terror uh, and that um, uh, sensibility uh, and when those two things combine, um, if the comedy overrides the terror, um, it um, it tends to um, pull out uh, the urgency of the terror the character is uh, feeling. Um, if it if it serves, it um, tends, I hope, to uh, show uh, the the weirdness of um, of someone. Who is terrified. And this is the character Alice who uh, at the very end of the work is getting in an elevator and it is an elevator that is its own kind of magic place. The elevator did not move. The buttons 2, L B L 1, L, 3, L, L, were they all pretend buttons or did some of them function? So much of the unrelenting, terrible, unexpected had happened to Alice, yet this was not what she expected at her time of release, contingency questions that were this unfunny. Grandly now, the whole chamber rose on a screeching cable breaking before seeding into a metal collar and another and another and another that was rusty sounding and alas that engaged with such finality she felt she must be at the garden level. When the light dimmed more, hiss giggling came from inside the curtain covered walls. She pressed one to no effect and why not press one again? And why the strong superstitious feeling that she should have pressed one only once? So that, that is that uh, moment is very late in the work in which a character who has been kept captive is um, about to only for a short moment be freed. But uh, she has to be in this elevator first that doesn't quite work.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write in a hut uh, about 50 feet from my home. Uh, It is a place that was the previous owner's man cave. And um, I have uh, had it uh, rebuilt. uh, And um, I have a small... Mitsubishi 9000 that cools and heats it and uh, it is a comfortable place I can I can feel uh, when I walk into it that um, the mess around me and I am a very messy writer um, is not then invading my home and I can also feel that I'm in my own uh, world here
0: what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing
1: Well, that's an interesting question for me because uh, I try not to live apart from the act of being present to beauty, to dark and luminous beauty uh, that um, is around me. Um, I I want a life that um, has the fullness of the art that I love so much, which is a life of being really fully present uh and um so i um when i am not writing i like to be playing my harmonica specifically blues uh harp uh on my harmonica i like to be um listening to the music of somebody like billy Holiday or Sunhouse or muddy waters and and playing inside that uh and um I, I wouldn't say I'm writing, but I would say my same habits of presence are at work, uh, and um, and so it, it feels uh, rewarding to me. Uh, I'm a gardener, and I'm a serious gardener, and I putter in my garden uh, uh, that has 18 different beds with different flowering things always coming into their own at distinctly different times. Uh, and... Um, And I uh, never have a day in which I don't spend some time tending to my garden, um, even if it's only to kind of uh, stand in awe at uh, some part of it. Right now in my garden, the Rose of Sharon bush that is um, about a nine foot high uh, bush is um, laden with uh, blossoms, uh, laden enough that all of its branches are curving out uh, and uh, heading towards the ground uh, because of just the sheer weight of these uh, blossoms. Uh, and the tree is completely full of bees and this this uh, Rose of Sharon um, is like its own clock, this thing always always blooms at this time in July and I mean within a week of this time in July and um, that that is a rich part of my life my life as a gardener sounds um, uh, boring perhaps uh, but um, uh, gardening is uh, something that I do that is of a piece with uh, writing and uh, um, is a way in which my art penetrates my life.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I, uh, I live with Christine Hale, my wife. She uh, is uh, a wonderful writer. Uh, she um, has written a wonderful novel called Basil's dream uh, that uh, was uh, published, uh, a published memoir, a piece of sky, a grain of rice. Uh, and um, I show her everything. she, Understands and appreciates the way in which the sentences of uh, my work matter to me. Um, I also have a kind of brother in uh, the writer Sebastian Matthews, who uh, is a wonderful, wonderful, seasoned, experienced poet. Uh, who, his newest work is uh, a work of essays beyond repair. Um, his newest book of uh, poetry, and I think it's his eighth or ninth, is A Beginner's Guide to a Head On Collision, a memoir in poems. And I'll just add that um, the poet Tony Hoagland, who was a very important artist brother to me and who died three years ago, um, has not left the room. <laughs> a lot of us, who read Tony's work and who uh, felt our way deeply into it, and who still do, feel in our lives that uh, Tony has has not left the room.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Well, this is a, this is a question that um, when people ask me, I always have to answer. Um, as someone who was for a long time an editor, I I was the editor of Puerto del Sol, the literary magazine at New Mexico State University. It was a job that I gave my all to uh, that um, pushed me to my very limits um, in every conceivable way. Um, And um, it has shaped my way of receiving rejection um, because if you are an editor and um, you really do dedicate yourself to it um, and you are honest with yourself, you have to understand in your bones how subjective it is that um, the things you rejected um, uh, might very well have been uh, things you rejected because you just didn't understand what the writer was doing. You didn't know how to meet that work on its own terms. You were still growing and developing. And um, you just did not know what to do with that work, but you rejected it. Uh, and um, you, re, uh, you accepted work that um, you felt you could understand. And in many cases, when you then saw it in publication, you realized you didn't have the first understanding of that. That also was something that you were still learning to meet on its own terms. Uh, So when I get a rejection slip from uh, someone, my first thought always um, is, um, okay, I forgive you, editor. Uh, You have not been able to meet this work on its own terms. Uh, And um, uh, I know that sounds... Uh, like I have an uh, awfully strong ego, um, but it is the way I receive rejection. I forgive you, editor. Uh, you just didn't know how to meet this on its own terms. I know what that feels like. On the other hand, when I receive an acceptance of any kind for an individual piece, for a book, etc., I am keenly aware that the same subjective processes came to bear in someone accepting my work, uh, and that it is very likely that um, the happy accident of them accepting my work occurred because they didn't get it, uh, and um, because they um, were still growing and developing, and because a whole variety of subjective other things were going on that, um, that made them say yes to this work and no to other work that uh, came before them. Uh, So it's humbling for me either way, let's put it that way, uh, to be rejected and to be accepted because of my experience as an editor who uh, did the job very conscientiously, but um, who was aware always in the job that I was still learning. And the assumption so often of writers who submit uh, their work for publication is, well, the editor knows. Of course the editor knows. Of course the editor understands how to meet every conceivable kind of work on its own terms. Uh, and um, and uh, to say quite objectively yes to this and no to that, well, it's just not true.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Uh, now, you know, I think the last time you asked me this— uh, I believe I said perseverance. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I I think because it is an important uh, word for me in terms of uh, staying in, not losing hope. Right now, a word that just resonates with me uh, in my waking moments and sleeping moments is the word dismissal. And the reason it does is that it is the working title of... um, a new work that is underway that um that that deals with in a variety of ways that i am still coming to understand being ordered to leave a job or to leave a competition or a relationship or a life that you thought you could never be forced to leave or to quit uh and um so you know how this is you have a um you have a work underway and um, you, uh, you want a way to contemplate that work that uh, will uh, keep giving you some new, new discovery. And um, at the particle level, it's good to have a single word uh, that will be helpful to you. So right now for me, this word that is just constantly in my brain is the word dismissal.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's just been wonderful. It just has been wonderful. And I'm so pleased and grateful to have this opportunity. Thank you, Mitzi.
0: If you liked today's show, check out my two previous interviews with McElvoy, where we talked about listening, voice, and how we know that we're writing what we're meant to be writing. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Please write me. I love hearing from you. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Richard Powers, Annie Murphy-Paul, and Alice McDermott. I want to send out a huge thank you again to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing, a reality, every week. And that is the truth. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you so much for listening.